The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, we have an extra special guest. I'm trying to, to maintain low tones and I'm trying to keep my insane enthusiasm down. But holy cow, Bill Gross, the Bond King, spent three hours talking with us literally about everything. Um, this is a pretty amazing conversation. He does not hold anything back. He names names. He calls people out. He I don't even want to say he has scores to settle because he did that in his book. Uh, he explains uh, what made PIMCO such a, a unique place, how, how they accumulated a trillion dollars, essentially creating the concept of institutional bond trading before PIMCO. Bond trading was by appointment only. This didn't exist before then. We cover everything from card counting to inflation to the Fed to his book to Mary Child's book, The Bond King, about him. Really, there were no comments left unturned. And we also revealed what his thoughts were about when his bonus uh, was revealed by a certain podcast host, uh, about eight years ago and, and how that came about, uh, his and Muhammad Alarian's multi-billion dollar bonus pool, how that thing could even exist, how Allianz allowed them to do it, and, and how after almost being a parlor game of speculation, how those billions of dollars in who got what bonus pool uh, was finally revealed. This was an Absolutely fascinating conversation and an extra special guest. So with no further ado, my conversation with PIMCO co-founder, Bill Gross. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is the Bond King, Bill Gross, the co-founder of PIMCO. Uh, at one time, Bill's total return fund was nearly $300 billion. It was the world's largest mutual fund. Uh, Gross controlled more bond money than anybody else in the world. He advised the U.S. Treasury on the role of subprime mortgage bonds in the 0809 crisis. He was named Morningstar's fund manager of the decade in 2010. They observed no other fund manager made more money for more people than Bill Gross. He is the author of several books, including Bill Gross on Investing and most recently his book, I'm Still Standing, Bill Gross and the PIMCO Express. Bill Gross, welcome back to Masters in Business. Thank you, Barry. Actually, I'm, I'm sitting talking to you, but I'm standing in life, so um, that's why the the title applies, I think, but it's good to be here. It's good to have you back. And in fact, um, I owe you a debt of gratitude because when you came on the show, you know, it's got to be six, seven years ago, 
you were really the first big name that said, all right, let, let's try this podcast thing out. And you opened the floodgates. So if I'm lacking in any objectivity, uh, let me disclose that right up front. But, but let's talk about your career, starting with Pacific Life. You're, you're a junior guy there, literally going into the vaults, taking bond certificates and clipping coupons off of that. How, how do you get from that sort of junior intern menial labor to launching a standalone active bond shop? Well, let me add to that quickly. I, uh, I could only clip coupons for uh, half of the day, I guess. The other half I was off making private placements loans to uh, uh, fledgling companies such as Berkshire Hathaway and <laughs> Walmart. I, I visited Sam Walton with his two kids, his dog, his truck. Uh, they had two Walmarts in uh, Bentonville, uh, Arkansas, and same thing with uh, Buffett and Charlie Munger. So I, I was doing some of that. Um, but to, to, to make the transition, I guess, to managing money, I, I, I did a master's thesis at UCLA, and I just graduated, and it was about um, convertible bonds, but also about uh, warrants and um, and option-related uh, vehicles. So I was interested in the bond market, even though I wanted to get into stocks. And um, Pacific Mutual in downtown L.A. had a billion dollars worth of bonds. And um, a, a broker from Whedon & Company, Howard Rakoff, decided to visit and tell me that somebody else in town was uh, trading some bonds from boxes. And, and in those days, as you know, um, there weren't any computers. There were IBM 360s, but we only had one. Um, you couldn't really uh, buy and sell on the wire, and so it was very difficult to trade. But I convinced them to uh, let me use five uh, million of their bonds and set up an active trading account, and that was the beginning of uh, PIMCO. And before PIMCO, uh, I've heard bond trading described as by appointment only. Is it fair to say you and your team invented fixed income trading? Am I am I overstating that? Um, probably just a little. Uh, there was this gentleman, I forget his name, at Occidental Life Insurance in L.A. that was doing some of that. Um, there was a Jim Guy from Lehman who later died uh, that was doing some of that. But uh, I was certainly one of the first, and I was certainly one uh, that pursued it and uh, convinced uh, at least the executives of Pacific Mutual that uh, this could be turned into a business. So maybe I should say PIMCO helped to bring about institutional trading on a level that just didn't exist before. You guys helped to systematize it. Is that is that more accurate? Yeah, I think that's true because back then, uh, you know, stocks were the vehicle to trade, and even uh, then they weren't traded that actively. Um, bonds were uh, basically bought and ultimately matured, uh, I guess, at uh, the big banks in the East and New York and Boston and Chicago. And so, yeah, bond trading was, was an afterthought. No one thought that you could sell one bond by another and make some money. Um, and so it was innovative and uh, I was glad to be part of it. So in the book, you describe how PIMCO grew in the 1980s and 1990s. 
we'll, we'll talk about the latter years later, but that period, um, following uh, everything that Chairman Paul Volcker had done with the bond market, that really was a, a, a perfect storm to, to plow into the fixed income space. Tell us about the growth of PIMCO in the 1980s and 1990s. Okay, and, and so you're right. Uh, we started at a great time, not uh, in the 70s, because the bear market didn't really end until 81, 82, 83, depending upon uh, you know the maturity of the bond. But, um, you know, it, it set up the premise for total return in bonds where you could not only get a coupon, get an interest payment, but uh, get a capital gain and... When you're starting at uh, close to 15% for a 30-year treasury, um, you know, it was, it was fairly easy, uh, ultimately, to get a capital gain. And so that uh, that helped us. Uh, we were also helped by uh, legislation from the Congress, uh, um, a bill uh, that legislated uh, ERISA, which mm-hmm. basically mandated that pension managers uh, had to diversify, um, and not just diversify between, um, you know, the obvious, but also diversify between East Coast and West Coast. And so uh, this little company called AT&T, the biggest (laughs) in the world, came according um, late in the 70s and uh, liked what they saw, and they hired PIMCO, and that really was the the beginning of it all. I mean, who, who wouldn't open the door to a person or to a company that had just been hired by AT&T. But this is more than just lucky timing for a couple of reasons that I want to go into. We'll talk a little later about some of the technical aspects that PIMCO really figured out to generate fixed income alpha. We'll, We'll circle back to that. I want to talk a little bit about your investment outlooks. These were were highly regarded. People thought they were both insightful and well written. And this is at a time when, you know, we kind of take it for granted today that uh, so many people write about financial investing and strategies. When you started doing the investment outlooks each month, that was somewhat unusual, wasn't it? Tell us about that. Yeah, it was very unusual. And um, I thought about it from a business context. And I said, you know, if I want uh, to be successful at PIMCO, if we want to grow as a company, You've got to say hello, and the best way to say hello is to write these investment outlooks. I mean, I mean, there were a few. Um, there was a famous guy, you know, uh, Barton Biggs from sure. uh, Morgan Stanley that was a real good writer. And, and I don't think Jim Grant had started yet, but he was an excellent writer in the time. So I wasn't the only one, but I, I thought that if I could inject some personal uh, vignettes into my uh, – forecast for the bond market, the people would read it because they didn't really read these things that came out of uh, First Boston and uh, Solomon Brothers and so on. And so I uh, I decided to take a little risk. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I wrote at the beginning of my book, uh, a quote, it said that uh, talent is helpful in writing, but guts are absolutely necessary. And so I, I decided to have a few guts and open myself up to people, and some liked that and some didn't, but, uh, you know, the, the reputation grew. Well, I want to point out, first, you were the the OG, the original gangster when it came to financial writing, because 
of course there were lots of professional writers and journalists writing about it, but as far as I recall, you might be one of the earliest people who were managing money to describe what you were doing. I, I, I want to say it was Howard Marks and you. Pretty much you were the guys that were putting out regular commentary before, you know, anybody could, could go online and find letters from Warren Buffett or, or things that Ray Dalio wrote or any one of uh, thousands of other professional money managers. When you began, I don't think there were many other money managers putting out written commentary the way you guys were. Uh, you, Buffett, and Marx are kind of the three that, that blazed this trail. I, I think so. And, um, you know, one of my positive um, attributes is that I, I wasn't afraid to take risk and to, uh, to take chances. And so, um, you know, there were those at, uh, at PIMCO and marketing and so on that would suggest that you can't do that because people would just jump on your ideas and front run. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm paranoid in a lot of things, but I wasn't paranoid in that in terms of um, thinking that uh, no one really cared. And um, so, so why not? Why not tell people what I thought? And uh, I, th- I think it worked. So it, no doubt it worked because the firm did well in the 80s and 90s. At what point did you come to the realization hey, this is kind of a one-of-a-kind company, and it's going to be special. Did you ever imagine you would have a trillion dollars in assets under management? Well, of course not. Um, at some point I did when we were uh, $990 billion. Right. But, uh, <laughs> um, no, my my objective was to, was to grow the company um, to... Um, you know, have a fiduciary responsibility to clients in terms of products and not uh, not uh, charging them too much or inventing products that rip them off. Um, but I also want to uh, or wanted to be famous. I mean, that's that's in uh, my book and in the uh, other child's book as well. And, um, you know, growing into a trillion and ultimately into two trillion was... Uh, was very productive in terms of uh, being famous and, I guess, ultimately infamous. So now that you look back, which is more important in hindsight, money, power, or fame? Well, I I never uh, enjoyed my power, and I've enjoyed some of the money, but uh, after a certain point, uh, it's not that productive uh, unless you give it away. And so I, I think ultimately if those are the three choices, and I did offer those to potential recruits, um, who, by the way, would never answer the question uh, because they were afraid that any of the answers would uh, be viewed negatively. But I, 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 I'm certain uh, you know, I would choose fame again. And I, um, huh. I, was, I was cognizant at the time that uh, fame can turn into infamy that you could fly too close to the sun, et cetera, et cetera, from an objective standpoint. But I must say, I didn't think it could happen to me because I was always on the up and up, always honest, always open. And and why would anybody? Uh, and I, I, I think ultimately um, that was eye-opening to me, uh, but I, I'd do it again. Hmm. Re- really interesting. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's talk a little bit about the way PIMCO grew and generated profits for clients. You, you describe a lot of very technical aspects to bond management and trading, which all contributed to fixed income alpha, which I think a lot of people reading your latest book might not have realized all the ways that, that you guys generated outperformance the the question i i ask is how is it possible with all this money laying around nobody thought of this before why didn't anybody else try and systematize total return of fixed income portfolios well i think barry i I mean a lot of bond managers were and probably still are um very conservative that's their job to protect principal and therefore uh on the sales side on the wall street side uh they were facing a clientele that uh, didn't really want to accept any of their suggestions, whatever they were. Um, you know, it was just the other way for me and for PIMCO. And, uh, you know, we were very innovative from the standpoint of uh, new products. We were one of the first to, to buy financial futures. Uh, we were uh, one of the first to, to buy mortgages, uh, a Fannie Mae mortgage. I, I mean, most most bond managers didn't want to go through the problem of segregating principal and interest and determining performance. It took a long time and a separate staff. And so we did that. And then, of course, into later into global and um, tips and, and so on. So the innovation was key, I think, to alpha generation. The biggest key was uh, the thrust of what we called secular uh forecasting, secular outlooks. And I, I, I read a book early on, uh, just after I joined PIMCO, um, called uh, Investing for the Long Term. I forget who wrote it, but um, you know, it, it focused uh, me on the dangers of trading for the short term because fear and greed on the other side uh, get involved and you tend to make bad decisions. And so uh, we approached it from the standpoint of three to five years in terms of the in Outlook, we brought in speakers uh, that spoke to that, uh, many of them, you know, Fed officials or ex-Fed officials, um, et cetera. And uh, so I think that really helped us to avoid, you know, the bad, the bad month or the bad quarter uh, by looking at three to five years. So those were several of the keys. And when you say investing for the long run, you're not talking about Jeremy Siegel's stocks for the long run. You're talking about... <laughs> something more specific. Yeah, I, and it basically it involved forecasting interest rates. Um, and, and to be fair, um, you know, throughout the period of time, the, the secular outlook for interest rates was down, down, down. And, um, you know, during our annual secular forums that we had, uh, where we brought in outside speakers and basically set the tone for the next 12 months, um you know, for the most part, it was a bullish 
forecast, which turned out to be true. If we had a forecast that went the other way for the long term, for the next three to five years, and obviously the company would have disappeared. But focusing on that, forgetting about the day or the week or the month, I think it became very successful in terms of positioning a portfolio duration-wise and volatility-wise and credit-wise. Really intriguing. So, so let's talk a little bit about you know you as a investor and trader. I'm I'm kind of entranced by the way I've heard the Pimco trading floor described. Your desk was a horseshoe, and the traders and analysts were arranged in a really specific manner. Tell us a little bit about uh, about the thinking there. Well, I, I thought it was pretty simple, and I, I don't really uh, remember the horseshoe. Um, but, uh, you know, I was positioned in the middle, certainly, and uh, the traders, of which they eventually grew to 20, 30, 40, 50, were, um, you know, basically positioned in pods, the mortgage people, the high-yield people, the global people, um, etc. And, uh, you know, they would work together and almost independently day-to-day, but uh, I would uh, check and, and others would check in terms of what they were doing, make suggestions and so on as, uh, as we walked around the floor. So it, um, it it made a lot of sense. It was a big trading room with, uh, I don't know how many square feet, but uh, I, I think functionally it really worked for us. So, so who got to sit close to you and who sat further away? Was that a function of... <laughs> How accurate, how active those markets were, or was it, you know, just a seniority basis? You know, it, it, well, it was both. Um, you know, I remember that Scott Simon uh, sat to the left of me, and uh, and Bill Powers, and uh, I don't think Chris Dallas ever sat next to me. He was he was uh, content to be on the wing, so to speak, and do his own thing. But um, but usually it would. Uh, be determined as well by who would who would be quiet as opposed to loud. Um, you know, I I liked quiet uh, to be able to think myself. And somebody with a loud voice talking to brokers or calling up their spouse, uh, you know, just, just wasn't working for me in terms of a trading day. So, um, you know, it's the quiet and function and seniority all sort of fit in. And I I didn't pick uh, somebody else picked and uh, I just went along with it until the noise got too loud and then they were out and somebody else was in. <laughs> <laughs> so so you mentioned the number of your colleagues in the book, which we'll talk about in a little bit. You're very generous in giving lots of credit to your colleagues for being major drivers of, of the firm's success. Tell us about some of these colleagues and, and how they contributed uh, to PIMCO's growth. Well, they were, uh, you know, we hired some really smart people and really aggressive people, um, obsessive people uh, that really love to do what they're doing. Uh, Chris Dialis was uh, one of the first. He was uh, my co-portfolio manager, so to speak, from the early 80s. He wanted to be a baseball player for the Angels but decided to take our $20,000 uh, offer. And he came and he had... Uh, gone to the University of Chicago and, um, you know, studied there about options and so on and um, ultimately became 
uh, instrumental in terms of uh, bringing financial futures to the to the portfolios and uh, suggesting some very creative ideas in terms of Jenny May futures, which uh, you know some say we we broke the market, but um, he was one. And then there was a, another gentleman, uh, Cheng Hong Zhu. Um, that came to us from Wells Fargo in San Francisco. Um, he ultimately left after 10 years to go back to China with his family and uh, head up, you know, a, a key position in uh, the Chinese uh, central bank, I think. Um, but he um, he would make lots of suggestions in investment committee in terms of uh, convexity and yield curve strategies, euro dollar futures, et cetera. Um, he was perhaps the smartest guy on the floor, including me. And uh, you know, I, so I think a lot of the strategies are due to his suggestions. Um, you know, there was a high yield gentleman, uh, Ben Trotsky, who was really a master of that. All of our mortgage people, uh, Bill Powers and John Hague and uh, Scott Simon, that I mentioned, were really smart, and their performance in mortgages through the years, in terms of their own portfolios, you know, just flowed over into the total return fund. So all of these uh, people, and there are a lot of other ones, um, you know, we were a team, and, you know, the the term Bond King uh, was, I, I guess, at more of a PR acceptance than anything else. I, I, I don't think there was a king. I was a leader, um, and certainly a leader of the investment committee, and, and in terms of accepting a, a standard portfolio for those to manage, but uh, lots of smart people, and um, I think it bared acknowledgement in my book. So lots of these colleagues eventually became successful. They became very wealthy, and they, you know, hit the eject button and retired. You stuck around for 43 years. That's a long time. What led to that longevity? That's pretty unusual these days. I, I think it, it was because I loved it. Uh, and, you know, the the standard um the standard idea that you should do what you love um is fine it it can't really apply to to billions of people uh, you know throughout the world uh, they all can't find jobs that they love they can't all paint they can't all write music but um this was an area that i loved in terms of buying and selling and competing and making money uh and becoming famous of course and so I, I think I stuck around for that long until I was 72 at PIMCO or 71, <clears throat> simply because I loved coming in. Um, it, it just it, it made my week. Um, and, you know, at PIMCO, we would have an investment committee until from 12 to 3 every day. But after 3, and certainly in the summertime, I, I could just go across the street and hit some balls and uh, play golf, too. So I, I wasn't a a one-way uh, horse rider, I, I guess. I, I could do a lot of things, but managing money and investing and and talking about it, writing about it, was something I truly enjoyed. So let's talk a little bit about the 2000s. You guys really, because of where you were positioned, got a very early warning look at what was going on in the bond market and the housing market. You were uh, pretty well positioned before, during, and after the financial crisis of 0809. 
How did you manage to to accomplish that? Well, I, I give most of the credit um, in this case to Paul McCulley, and Paul's still around. He's on TV. He's got that long hair and that southern drawl. Um, but, At least he got he rid of the beard, finally. <laughs> yes. But he was a, uh, an economist at, at heart, and uh, he was a permanent member of the Investment Committee, and he, he would uh, speak about uh, Hyman Minsky and his theory about stability turning into instability. And then as the housing market roared and peaked, uh, we became sensitive to um, the potential for instability. I I had a brother-in-law who uh, was a mortgage banker on, on a small scale, and uh, we would have dinner sometimes. He would tell me about no-docs and liar loans and so on um, before anyone at the Fed knew anything about that. And so I I decided to take 10 of our credit analysts and send them out to, throughout the country and pretend that they were buying houses and to see what was going on. Uh, they came back uh, uh, and said, hey, this, this stuff is dangerous, these uh, subprime mortgages, et cetera, et cetera. And so we were wise to this early on. We voided portfolios of subprime mortgages and uh, uh, high-yield bonds in general, anticipating a crisis at some point. So I I, I think our investment committee, and again, Paul McCulley uh, was the leader in this regard, uh, really helped in terms of anticipating what might happen at some point. It did happen. Huh, to, to say the least. Full disclosure, I know McCulley really well. We've gone fishing together in Maine. I've had him on the show before, and full credit to him for giving Minsky's work a wider modern um, audience. So given that you were positioned so well during the financial crisis, how did the relationship with the U.S. Treasury develop? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, I guess this this sounds delicate, but it shouldn't be. you know, almost all of us don't, weren't in touch with the Treasury. I mean, I, I talked to um, uh, Timothy Geithner once over the phone uh, on a Sunday evening when he <laughs> called me up after I'd had a few beers and wanted to know what was happening in the economy. But that that's the only time I can ever remember talking to the Treasury. Uh, we weren't like, like BlackRock and Larry Fink, which nothing wrong with that, Um uh, but we were a company on the West Coast that basically uh, did our own research and uh, weren't in touch with Treasury officials unless they were Fed officials uh, um, that had retired, like uh, you know Bernanke and uh, uh, Paul Volcker and uh, and others. And so I don't really know how it developed. Uh, it certainly wasn't a phone call. They called us and and said, "Can we?" Um, help manage a uh, portfolio of mortgages uh, for them. And we said, sure. And uh, so that was basically it. Uh, And, you know, there was a rumor that we badgered them into um, guaranteeing Fannie and uh, Freddie mortgages. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, nobody made a phone call uh, to, to Badger or to, to influence in any way. Uh, what we did see is that uh, of all the mortgages, that Fannie and Freddie were the highest quality and that they were uh, yielding uh, astronomical yields relative to uh, treasuries and, and much wider spreads than 
had ever occurred. And so that was the fascination with uh, Fannie and Freddie. We did well with mortgages, and we did well during the crisis. And after the crisis, uh, PIMCO went from $1 trillion to $2 trillion because uh, we had protected their money. So we mentioned earlier the, the new book by Mary Child, The Bond King, is out. Um, and I know you participated in, in responding to some questions about um, at least validating certain things or not factually. But it's pretty easy to read that book and see that she's trying to make the case that PIMCO was the largest holder of Fannie and Freddie bonds and that you guys bullied the government into guaranteeing them. Make your case. Re- rebut that premise. Was it simply, hey, we never spoke to anyone at Treasury about Fannie and Freddie? Exactly. I mean, how could we bully or badger if um, I or um, I guess Muhammad didn't pick up the phone and uh, and and badger and bully? I, first of all, we we were bullies in the trading room, but we weren't bullies from the standpoint of uh, you know Treasury strategy. Uh, were you bullies, or were you really just the 800-pound gorilla in the space? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, we had a lot of money. We bought a lot of bonds, and, um, you know, that helped our performance. But, you know, bullies, no. You can't be a bully if you don't pick up a phone. So your counter to the book, The Bond King, is no, we, we didn't force the government to guarantee these. The government did that because, for their own reasons, primarily... They were desperate for liquidity, and they were desperate for some degree of stability, and this is how they achieved it. Is is, is that a fair counter-argument to her book? Um, it, it certainly is. And, and one interesting sidelight, I mean, during the crisis, uh, as Congress was voting, uh, I guess, for their $900 billion package, uh, bailout package, um, you know, Warren Buffett, Called me up and uh, and told me about a plan he had to to contribute a hundred uh, million in uh, equity, hundred million, hundred hundred billion, hundred billion in equity, uh, and to um, you know to basically buy uh, subprime mortgages from the banks. In other words, to take the load off their shoulders. Obviously, the to buy them at our, at the right price, and uh, within 30 minutes after checking with our executive committee, I said, "Fine, we'll do it." Um, the next day, however, um, you know, the Treasury Secretary decided to go the other way, and that's when they um, decided to to ask banks to to issue preferred stock, and uh, the bailout took another form. But uh, that's about the only potential connection we had uh, with um, the Treasury. And as I say, it never came to fruition. It was like a 48-hour idea. Huh, really intriguing. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's talk a little bit about this book, which generated uh, a little bit of controversy. 
people blamed you for just seeking to settle scores. Tell us about the book and what motivated you to sit down and write it. Well, I'd written a book 20 years ago, uh, and I didn't really think at the time that I had another book in me. Uh, sort of like writing novels, I guess. Um, after the first one, it's all downhill. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I was in touch with Mary Childs for five or six years, um, certainly after I left PIMCO. Uh, we were not good friends, but uh, she would... Uh, interview me uh, occasionally and um, so I was uh, alerted to the fact or I, I read something on Apple Books that a, a book by Mary Childs was coming you know 12 months in the future and it had a prospective cover on it and, uh, described me on the cover as, as ruthless and um, you know having lost everything and I I said to myself uh I, that's not who I am as I look in the mirror. And, and so, you know, rather than thinking about a lawsuit or any of that, I said, well, the, the best way to counter that and to give your impression of uh, PIMCO and its years and your uh, part in it uh, was to write your own version. And I had time. I'm, I'm out here in the desert. I play golf in the afternoon. I... Uh, get up at six in the morning and I manage, uh, you know, my portfolios for five or six hours and uh, I had time and so I, I just started writing uh, in order to say that I'm still standing, I haven't lost everything and uh, the ruthless part, I, I'm not sure what uh, she was referring to. I, I, I called her up and I said, Mary, uh, you know, I, I don't get the ruthless part and uh, I think she decided to take it off the cover. I, I haven't read the book, of course, because I'm too sensitive to criticism, and I, I know there's criticism in it, but the, the ruthless part, I, I just went overboard, and that's what set me off and said, uh, write your own book, tell your own story, and, and hopefully after five or six years, um, you know, the the wounds, as in time heals all wounds, um, had healed uh Pretty much, uh, and the scars had turned from red to white, um, and, and so I thought I could write an objective book about uh, the pluses and the minuses, uh, each argument, Pimco's argument, my argument, why I left, and um, why I wasn't necessarily the Bond King. The company was full of Bond kings and Bond queens for a long, long time. Huh. And and the book title does not have uh, Ruthless in it. Um, and for those people who may not be familiar with Mary Childs, um, she covered uh, PIMCO and the bond market at Bloomberg News for a while. Before that, she worked at the Financial Times, and now she's a co-host of uh, Planet Money podcast at NPR. And we'll talk a little later about uh, a project she and I did together. But let's talk about the book. You do not... And I think ruthless is, may not be the right word, but you don't hold anything back in the book. I mean, you are completely blunt and forthcoming. An example I want to ask you about, you said your partner who negotiated the Allianz purchase of PIMCO skinned them alive. <laughs> so, so that's a serious um, line. 
Tell us about the Allianz takeover of PIMCO and how you guys managed to get such a one-sided deal that worked to the benefit of uh, the PIMCO owners and the company. Oh, so much so. Um, and Ken Poovey's no longer with us, but uh, he was brilliant. He was he was uh, the, a leader in terms of negotiating with Allianz. And um, by the way, Allianz, when they bought PIMCO, they, um, they only bought... 50% of it, Pacific Mutual held on to 50% of it for um, you know a year or two, and um, they uh, left with us, the people, the partners, uh, 33% of the profits going forward, which still exists, and um, and so that basically meant that what they were paying for was was about a sixth of Pimco in in terms of the ongoing revenue stream. Um, but to, to talk about Poovey and what he did, um, he basically suggested to them, and we would suggest to him, and we, yes, we were very ruthless from the standpoint of, um, you know, trying to strike a, a very good deal uh, if we were ever going to sell uh, part of the company. And um, Poovey would all, always tell them, and I, I would participate in the discussions, that uh, these people needed to be incentivized. Um, not that 33% of the profit pool wasn't incentive enough, but uh, Poovey would say, um, you know, uh, these partners will be, uh, they're 25 now, they'll be 50, they'll be 75, they'll be 100. This won't be enough uh, to keep incentivizing uh, the existing partners and to bring in new partners. So he, he devised a, what he called a B-share, um, sort of a fake equity uh, type of plan where partners would be given a certain amount of B-shares and, and that the value of those shares ten, five, ten years forward, uh, w- when they could be cashed in, would be based upon multiples, uh, 10, 12, 14, 16 uh, time multiples of, uh, of existing earnings. And uh, basically, when I say he skinned them, uh, Allianz had no idea that what they would be paying in terms of those multiples and in terms of the performance uh, were anywhere close to what eventually occurred. And um, it, it was a brilliant idea. He uh, pulled the wool over their eyes. Uh, they were, I guess, starstruck with, uh, you know, buying PIMCO and, and looking forward to um, wonderful publicity, but uh, it was really that B-share plan that made made me more money and made partners more money than the existing 33% profit pool. It was, it, uh, it totaled billions and billions of dollars uh, in terms of B-share payouts. And you, you don't, again, you don't hold back. You say in the book, quote, none of us were worth what we were paid, unquote. Explain. If, if you're generating... Billions and dollars of profits. What should you have been paid? Well, like, I, I, there's a certain logic to that. I mean, our, our fees weren't excessive. We were charging 35 basis points on average. We just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And um, one of the beauties of working at Pimco was that it was small. We kept our expenses down and our people low. Uh, you know, companies like Bank of America had 250,000 people. We had. 2,500. We were a hundredth of their size with, you know, profits about the same size. And, and so, um, you know, that was 
part of our strategic brilliance as well, I guess. Jim Muzzy and uh, early on Bill Podlick, the original partners, uh, you know, simply thought that we should keep expenses and people low, with, that we could manage without a lot of people. And so, you know, that generated huge bonuses. Um, were we worth it? Uh, you know, I, I simply said that uh, I don't think anybody's worth uh, that type of money. Um, you know, maybe uh, maybe Bezos and uh, Elon Musk in terms of their creativity, but it just it, it was too much money. It, you know, as as I left Pemco, uh, our executive secretaries were making five hundred million dollars. Um, um, our 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 head corporate lawyer, uh, you know, the the GE lawyer. Uh, was making one or two million dollars. Our our lawyer was making ten to twelve million dollars. It's like we didn't know we had so much money we didn't know how to get rid of it. Um, and um, we had this egalitarian type of attitude that we should spread it out as much as possible. But uh, I don't think anybody there deserved uh, to, to make what they were making. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So we're going to circle back to the bonus structure, but unfortunately at this point I have to insert myself into our conversation. So you get fired from PIMCO in 2014, and I save a bunch of um, your IOs from previous dates, and in the train home from work, I, I just read a bunch, just you know across a couple of years. By the time I get home that night, your voice is in my head. And, you know, whenever they uh, arrest a painting forger, they always say the same thing. Once I had his stroke down, everything I painted looked like Picasso. Well, once I had your voice in my head, whatever I wrote sounded like you. And so for, it was then called Bloomberg View, I wrote your final investment outlook in your voice um, purposefully making it outrageous, but you know, by the time it got through the editing process, it was smoothed out enough that it very much sounded like your voice. So much so that Pimco called Mary Childs, asking her, "Hey, how the hell did you guys get Bill's last I/O? This is wrong." And uh, it's in Bloomberg View. It's an opinion piece. It's a satire. It's a parody. Um, and so you and I began. Speaking about that, but before we get into the bonus discussion, tell us a little bit about that day. What was it like after 43 years uh, to be sent to the principal's office and, and sent home? Well, it was traumatic. I, I mean, I, I was the, one of the founders. I, I was the, one of the leaders, uh, the chief investment officer. Um, the performance was flat for 12 months, but... Um, you know, nothing uh, tragic. And, you know, uh, the executive committee, uh, which was going to fire me on Friday afternoon uh, because they thought I was unsettling in terms of my pursuit of uh, insider's 
talking to the press uh, in any case. Um, you know, I, I decided I'm not walking that plank, that I, I deserve better than this. So I, I even asked in the last week or two when when I knew that, uh, you know, the inevitable was uh, coming up that Friday afternoon, I said, why don't you just let me manage, you know, a small portfolio, a closed-end fund, uh, just so I, I can stay in it. Um, I, I said, I'll even work in another building if you want. Um Huh. And they looked at me. They they said it's not going to happen. And so I, at the time, I couldn't understand that. Now I sort of do. I you know when you when you kill the king, you better make sure he's dead. And uh, that... they didn't want any presence of Bill Gross in the ongoing Pimco. I, I objectively understand that. But uh, to turn down uh, an offer to let me manage a few small portfolios and maybe write some investment outlooks. I, I couldn't believe it. Um, I made a quick call to, to Janice uh, uh, with Dick Weil, who was heading that up and had been um, COO at PIMCO a few years before, and uh, he said, sure, come over. And so I uh, didn't want to walk the plank. I didn't want to go into that committee and be fired, and so I left that night, uh, walked down the 20... Uh, floor stairs for the last time, and uh, and the next morning I was off to Denver. Um, I, I just I didn't think it it was the way you should treat somebody that uh, was a founder and responsible for much of their success. And, and there was at the time a lot of sniping in the news. They had said you had become disruptive and were a problem on the trading floor and was affecting morale, and there was a lot of personal stuff. Hey, Bill's a little <laughs> unstable, and they trotted out that picture from you at the Morningstar conference with uh, the glasses, which I think were uh, 2010 or 20. It was years before. You know, what was your reaction when this became so, you know, personal and, and to be blunt, so petty on, on all around? Well, it, it wasn't good. Um you know, I, I guess like in a divorce, and this was a divorce, uh, both sides start uh, picking at each other, you know, war of the roses type of thing. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I, I didn't enjoy uh, what they were leaking to the press. I, I never talked to the press, by the way, uh, but I didn't enjoy that they said the performance was bad, that I was erratic, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I was always somewhat... Um, not erratic, but always uh, quirky. somewhat of a quirky character, and, yeah. and I don't think that had changed. But but there had been, you know, two or three people that uh, our lawyers eventually discovered that were leaking, leaking information to the press and favoring uh, Muhammad as opposed to me in terms of why he left, and I I didn't think that was nice, and uh, so. Uh, that ultimately, and and to be fair, as I wrote in my book, um, you know, one of the main reasons uh, I think that they fired me was I I was in favor of low fees and they were in favor of high fees. Uh, you know, Dan Iveson in the mortgage department had created uh, you know products uh, that had two and twenty hedge fund types of uh, types of fees, and we were making a lot of money. I was making some of it. Uh, but it just seemed to me in terms of 
fiduciary responsibility that uh, low fees were something we owed to clients and we weren't hedge fund managers. And so um, ultimately, I think the executive committee, which was formed uh, with eight people, uh, three of which were portfolio managers, one uh, Iveson, who eventually led the, the coup, as I called it, um, <laughs> you know, they they went in the direction of high fees as opposed to low fees, ETFs, and um, and so on. So, um, you know, there was a fundamental reason, but there there was also other personal reasons. Um, I was 72. It was the time to go. Sure. Um, not in my mind, but in their mind, uh, because at 72, uh, as I wrote in my book, you, you're not as sharp as you are at 52, and certainly you're not as sharp as you, you uh, at 77 as you, as you were at uh, 72. So, so maybe there was some of that, and I, I understand some of that, but I, I just still don't understand uh, the exit and why they had to do it that way. So let's talk a little bit about that War of the Roses. So I got, I don't remember if it was a fax or an email, but a spreadsheet that was, you know, the long debated and wondered about uh, bonus pool at PIMCO, and it had you earning about $300 million a year in bonus, uh, Mohammed Alarian about $240 million in bonus, uh, and down the run, a whole run of, of, of literally billions of dollars in excess compensation. So tell us about why that was released, and, and did that have the intended uh, effect of really rattling the senior management at PIMCO and, and causing turmoil uh, in the, the C-suite? Well, I think it might have had an effect. That was the intent. I, I didn't have anybody in the company that could tell me um, whether or not there was steam coming, uh, you know, out of the ears of the, uh, many of the, the, the partners. But I, you know, like I say, I, I had been fired. Uh, they were talking in the press negatively about me, and I didn't want to call up the press and talk negatively about them. And so... What I did was I said, uh, well, I know how I can uh, get back at them. Um, and it was childish in a way, but it was it was a way to, you know, to stop taking punches and maybe throw one of my own. And so I I took last year's bonus pool and I, I <laughs> mailed it to eight random uh, partners uh, in an envelope and uh, sent it as a package to... PIMCO, and I assume they ultimately distributed it. Uh, um, you know, for the most part, I, I assumed anyway that partners knew what other partners were making. That You know, that happens over drinks and over the water cooler. But um, it just made me feel better that I could do something to counter what they were doing. So in the book, you said you could hear the screams from the top floor all the way uh, at your house. But let me just shed a little color about what took place when when I got the document. I, I walked it over um, to some senior editors at Bloomberg who walked it through legal, and we brought in, of all people, Mary Childs, who was covering PIMCO. And um, the plan was I would write the opinion piece about how outrageous this was, and Mary would cover it as straight news, uh, and that 
after we had vetted everything, and they, you know, to Bloomberg's credit, their process is just absolutely fastidious and top-notch. I was very comfortable that we checked every box, both from a, a, a journalistic side and a legal side. And um, what they did is they waited till 8 p.m. East Coast time after the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times print editions had gone to bed, and they called up PIMCO to get a, a comment on it. And um, they seemed to not really believe that we had what we had. And so the next day, both pieces ran and all hell broke loose. That was the most read pieces on the Bloomberg terminal for like six months. I, I don't remember <laughs> the exact date, but it absolutely blew up. And I know it was a parlor game. People were trying to guess what PIMCO's bonus pool was. So now that you look back at it, did, did this accomplish uh, what you hoped? And, you know, do you have any regrets about that, you know, War of the Roses uh, era? Oh, God, God no. I, I mean, that, I, would, I, I, I thought then, I still think now, that it was just a little jab uh, to, to counter their uh, uppercuts. And so... Um, they really do any damage to the, the structure of the company in terms of compensation? I don't know. Um, but since they were all uh, very good in terms of the executive committee, of, in terms of smoothing things out, I, I assume internally that uh, you know they gave it an afterthought, but not not for six months. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story that I, I never shared with you, but I, I might as well, as long as uh, we're coming clean. Um, so in order to protect our source, spreadsheet was to the penny. I mean, it was really precise. It, it wasn't $240 million. It was $239,877,643 you know, and 52 cents. But all right, let's make it 240 and it'll protect the source a little bit. And I don't remember the gentleman's name who was the head of PR at PIMCO at the time, but I was very annoyed that he would come out and say, oh, those numbers are wrong. And, um, and he accused me of getting it, uh, not just that they weren't precise. Oh, this is wrong. Ritholtz uh, doesn't know what he's talking about. It's all wrong. So I, I recall sending an email to him with his exact salary and bonus to the penny and said, next time you say something wrong, I will release the salary of every person at PIMCO down to the penny. So your career, most of us have followed your career for decades. And there's a sense that you grew up kind of hard-scrabbled. You didn't come from money. I'm, I'm curious, do you today, do you think of yourself as rich? Have you wrapped your head around the fact that you're a billionaire because sometimes we, we see some of the things you write and say and do, and it's like he still thinks he's that kid from, you know, 50, 60 years ago. I do. Um, you know, objectively, I, I know I'm a billionaire. I see it every morning with my, uh, you know, financial statement uh, in my portfolios. But, um, you know, I think that comes from a, a certain insecurity. I and and to be fair, you know, I've got a plane, I've got several homes, and so that's typical of billionaires. But um, you know, all throughout uh, my life, uh, in my marriages and so on, I you know I would bring home uh, takeout 
dinners from the, the local Taco Bell um, three times a week. Uh, you, you know, we, we never lived and still don't live uh, high off the hog. We eat very simply. We go to sleep at uh, 8 o'clock and, and watch uh, Netflix and so on and so on. We don't go out at parties. We don't uh, dress up a lot. And, um, and, and so, um, you know, my idea of living well is, is yeah, certainly have a, enough money to live well, but then to to live simply and to ultimately give give back. Uh, not in terms of time. I I don't give back time like Bill Gates and Melinda Gates do. Uh, that's not my strength. But um, you know, I, I give back a lot of money. Um, I've done the giving pledge. I've already given a billion or so in in terms of uh, money. I have a $500 million foundation, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so, you know, it's a simple life, but not so simple in terms of all the money that uh, I have to to give back, not just to people and um, organizations, but, you know, certainly to the government. When I uh, kick the bucket, uh, they'll, they'll take 40% of it. Unless you give it all away. That's uh, <laughs> a good enough reason to, A, have an estate tax, and B, Give the money away. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So I have to ask this question. What's the deal with Gilligan's Island? You, you have to explain. And, and P.S., I always understood that you could put whatever you want in your backyard. Nobody has the right to a view across the neighbor's property. Um, but tell us about Gilligan's Island. Well, our, our house is right across from the the, the bay or the entrance um, uh, that the opening segment of Gilligan's Island uh, takes place. And, and, and ah, one day a few okay. years ago, Amy and, um, and I This were, is in Newport Beach or in Laguna? It's in Newport Beach. It's a home in Newport Beach. And mm-hmm. um, so we watched it and we said, hey, that's... That's where this house is, and uh, so we we learned to love Gilligan Island, uh, the skipper and uh, the movie star, and, and we would sing it to each other. And so um, when we would go down to the home in uh, South Laguna, uh, we'd sing Gilligan's Island, and, and the whole neighbor thing started with a sculpture in the backyard that the neighbor didn't disapprove of, uh matter of fact, he it, said he liked it, uh, but one day there was a windstorm, uh, the palm tree fronds um, broke down and, and broke some of the, the glass, and so we put up the net to, uh, you know, during inclement weather to protect it. He didn't like that, and he sued, and that was the, the start of the whole thing, uh, which was ultimately ridiculous. That. Uh, that um, you know, I spent five hundred million or five hundred million. Um, you know, I spent five hundred thousand in lawyers' fees. I think he did too. Um, I suggested we just give it all to local charities. He didn't want to do that. I, I, I think he, 
I, I think being a personage, um, you know, like the Bond King, uh, was part of the problem. He wanted to take it to the Bond King, and uh, and he did. Um, and you the, mentioned the in the book he was always sort of uh, watching you guys, had cameras trained on your house. How much of this is just, gee, you know, I, I don't care if I'm a billionaire Bond King. I, I'm entitled to have some degree of privacy in my own backyard. Where, where, where's the line there? Well, that's true, and that's our argument that it didn't fly with the judge. But, um, <laughs> you know, the city ordinances said that uh, 60 decibels was as loud as you could play the music. We had a decibel meter that kept it at 60 or under, but it didn't please the neighbor, um, especially at 8 or 9 o'clock when we were in the pool. And so, um, you know, he kept suing, he kept calling the cops, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately, we wound up in court for playing loud music. And, uh, it, it is sort of disheartening. Um, uh, not that it diminishes my career, but it, um, it, it's certainly what people talk about. And, uh, you know, I guess my epitaph will be half Bond King and half, uh, you know, loud music, uh, which is a little disturbing, but um, but I was part of it. Uh, Bill, I, I wish you would have called me for advice. I, I would have given you a very simple solution. Ask him what he wants for the house, buy it, and knock it down, and, and problem solved. <laughs> he didn't have as much money as I did. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you, I, I, someone I worked for had a neighbor that was problematic, and that was their solution. Hey, what do you want for your house? And the guy threw out a ridiculous number. He's like, done. Have your lawyer call my lawyer, and we'll, we'll be bulldozing this in a month. Right. Um, so, so, you know, Mary's book is out. Your book is out. There's been reviews of both. Your book actually got some pretty good reviews also. Uh, you really lay a lot of stuff out there that most people don't. Any regrets about the book? Is there anything you feel like, well, maybe I shouldn't have gone that far here? Or, hey, this is who I am, and, and you got to take the good with the bad? No, no regrets about the book. I mean, I, I read it myself about a hundred times over and over and over again and, and cut some stuff and not. Um, what I wanted to do was, was to present subjectively, of course, uh, from my uh, classes, but uh, what I thought was a fair argument on either side from PIMCO and myself, and, and to explain the, what I call the, you know, the PIMCO magic, um, why we were so successful, and I I think that's the heart of the book. Um, you know, why was Pimco successful? What uh, what were the people like? Um, uh, so it, um, I, I think it was a good book. It was, I think it, I, I shouldn't say this, I think it was a great book. Uh, and I think people should read it, not, uh, not thoroughly. You can't spend three or four hours uh, reading it. But there's some very interesting parts and there's some, interesting investment outlooks in the appendix uh, uh -huh. that, um, you know, I think are pretty humorous and some of my best. And so I'd, uh, it's only four ninety nine, so I'd, I'd recommend, uh, you know, going to where you need to go, Amazon or wherever it is. And, uh, Five dollars and, and all the proceeds are donated to charity. Yeah, uh, to, the, to the extent that that matters much, but uh, that's where, where it goes. Let's talk a little bit about the state of the market today and, and what's going on. Uh, when you wrote the book, inflation was looking like it was going to tick all the way up to 5%. We, 
We're recording this towards the end of March. The last print we got was just about 8%. What's your view of inflation here? Is this transitory or is this akin to the 1970s or is this something completely different? Well, I don't think it's transitory. Uh, In other words, going back to 2% or less, um, I I think it's a result, yes, of of, uh, supply shocks, of oil prices, of uh, the war in Ukraine, um, you know, a lot of uh, global considerations. But it's also, um, you know, a Friedman, Milton Friedman type of thing in which... uh, you know, basically, money supply matters, and I, I'll take it back, Barry. And uh, I don't think he started then, but you're certainly aware of 1971 when Nixon went off the gold standard, and, sure. and credit was free to be created as opposed to be tied to, to gold. And and back then, total credit in the United States, and I'm talking about mortgages, I'm talking about government debt, I'm talking about credit cards, I'm talking about everything, uh, was one trillion dollars. Um, today, that number is $87 trillion. And so talk about a growth industry, um, 1 to 87 over, what, 51 years? Um, and, and so it's been this tremendous uh, creation of credit in the last few years, certainly, uh, based upon the, the COVID bailout, and as well as the fiscal uh, stimulation of $4 trillion dollars, uh, you know, to steady the economy. So when you combine a huge fiscal push with, you know, monetary creation and the Fed increasing its balance sheet to eight trillion, and like I say, credit, 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 um, inflation's inevitable. And so if if they continue to do this, and I know the Fed's talked about reducing its balance sheet, um, and uh, the government isn't issuing a four trillion dollar deficit, uh, perhaps just one trillion now. Um, yeah, this is certainly excessive in terms of the possibility of exceeding 2% inflation. So, yeah, we're coming back down. Yes, oil prices and gasoline prices will uh, steady at some point and come back down. Same thing with food and wheat and um, all of the commodities. Um, but, um, and this is a guess, um, you know, 4 to 5% inflation for the next several years, I think, is baked in the cake. And the Huh. The question becomes, now that the Fed isn't buying bonds, um, who wants to buy them at um, you know, 235 for the 10-year and, and 250 for the 30-year? And, and perhaps a flight to safety, uh, I can see that. Uh, but, but you're certainly uh, being uh, out-inflated, I, I guess, by um, the, you know, the, the existing and the future uh, trail of inflation going forward. Bonds are definitely something to avoid. Huh. That's really interesting. The Fed, are they behind the curve? And if so, by how much? Yeah, they're way behind the curve. And I, I can see, uh, you know, the, the COVID crisis of a year, two years back now, or getting on to two years. Um, I can see how that would be a reason to, to not raise interest rates to not stop buying bonds. But, uh, you know, I, I think Powell should have figured it out that, uh, you know, a $4 trillion budget deficit and the stimulation in the economy that that uh, creates, is, as well as the credit that was being created by his policies at uh, 
near 0% interest rates was was ultimately going to be very inflationary and that to think that he could stop it, um, and, and he, he doesn't speak to stopping it on a dime. He, he says it will take time. But uh, once you get the momentum going, like in the 70s, um, you know, and the, and the raises, uh, you know, based upon uh, prices at the stores and the grocery stores, uh, you know, it's pretty hard to stop. And, and in order to keep the economy above the line, that's the important thing, to keep it above the line in terms of, Four to five percent uh, nominal GDP, which was the standard uh, before, uh, you have to keep on printing money, and uh, ultimately that becomes destructive, not just in terms of inflation, but in terms of savings, and it distorts the uh, U.S. economy and it distorts the global economy. So I'm going to assume you don't think bonds are a buy anytime soon. No, I don't. But but I don't fear. Uh, you know, I think there's a limit to the ten year. I I I've talked about in my tweets in the last few weeks about you know breaking a, a long term downtrend line at uh, two fifteen for the ten year, and now it's at two thirty five. So theoretically, it's broken the line. Um, I don't I don't think the economy can stand much more in terms of higher yields. I mean, uh, we have a flat yield curve. What does that mean? Uh, ultimately, in terms of forward interest rates, it, it basically means that the 10-year at 235, it's, uh, five years forward, is estimated to be 240 or 245. So all of all of the curve um, going forward, uh, basically in terms of current pricing, uh, is suggesting that interest rates don't go up much. And so why would that be huh. if inflation is four to five percent? Um, it would be simply because uh, if a ten-year goes to three or three and a half or four, um, then it, it'll break the economy. Uh, much like when the Fed went to five and a quarter in, in 2006, it broke the mortgage market. Um, you know, now we're at much lower levels, but uh, there's been a lot more debt created, and I I, I simply think that. Uh, 50 or 100 basis points higher is about as much as, as the economy can take. Otherwise, uh, we see recession. And, and that's basically what the flat yield curve is telling you, that, that uh, you've got to be careful. And that's why the 30-year bond with, um, you know, a duration of, uh, you know, close to 20 uh, is trading at 2.5%. It's simply because there are those that think um, – that if interest rates go much higher, the the economy will enter recession. Um, so I I don't like bonds. Obviously, if you buy a ten year at two thirty five, you're not getting paid your money's worth um, relative to inflation. You should go elsewhere. But I don't I don't think there's the nineteen seventy nine eighty eighty one risk anytime soon of uh, of interest rates moving much more than a hundred basis points higher. Huh, that's really interesting. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.
let me give you a counterfactual to the issue of a trillion dollars in credit 50 years ago. Hypothetically, there wasn't this massive credit creation, uh, Fannie, Freddie, the government, the private sector, the household sector. Let's say the, the, the outstanding credit was a couple of trillion dollars. What would that lack of credit creation have meant for the economy? Uh, asked differently, how much of our wealth and success and, and GDP expansion and rise in, in corporate profits is related to all of this credit that's been issued? Oh, it is. Um, it, and, and certainly you need to create credit, ongoing credit, uh, relative to last year and the year before, um, in order to to keep the economy going, um, the question becomes how much, how much credit. And uh, certainly in the last several years, it's accelerated dramatically because of the fiscal and the monetary stance at zero percent interest rates. And no one can really judge. No one, no one can tell you or any. No one can tell me that they know what the number is. It's just that uh, the global economy, for the most part, is hooked on uh, more and more credit, more and more money. And that's what, um, you know, the cryptos, that's what uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and so on um, represent in terms of people that um, are fearful uh, that the government keeps on printing. So, so let's talk about that. I, I'm going to suggest it's not a huge coincidence that all the credit created during the financial crisis in 08 and 09 and beyond coincided with the creation of a lot of different cryptocurrencies and their rise in price. Uh, you mentioned you own Bitcoin. You're optimistic about Ethereum. This is not the typical safe bond experience. This is a bit of a long shot. So tell us why you've jumped aboard the cryptocurrency train. Well, it, it's not a um, because of its volatility uh, and comparing it to, to the dollar. Um, you know, it's certainly uh, 10 times as volatile as, as the dollar uh, during any particular period of time. So to to use it as a medium of exchange, um, which ultimately I, I think it will be um, and is becoming, uh, you know, it is a very risky proposition. It depends on on the level of uh, Bitcoin on any particular day, any particular moment. I, I think it's fascinating that on Saturday and Sunday at uh, at midnight, I can I can see trading in in Bitcoin, um, you know, limited though it is, but. Um, I think ultimately, you know, the, the global financial system, which is dollar-dependent and dollar-supported, um, you know, much like in the 70s in which Nixon broke the code uh, from gold, um, you know, things happen. And now that there uh, is a potential alternative in terms of Bitcoin and, and some of the other cryptos, um, you know, I, I think it offers the opportunity to um, to avoid uh, to avoid a, a currency that goes down, down, down in terms of its value. Um, you know, the Bitcoin ultimately is capped. At least they say it's capped. Um, 
you know, at a certain level, most of which is, has already been mined or, or supplied. And so um, to the extent that future supply is limited and to the extent, and this is important, to the extent that it becomes a medium of exchange, and, and it's not really a medium of exchange yet. You can't buy a donut with Bitcoin, but you, you can buy other things, and there are countries that um, are, are using it. Um, so... Um, you know, it, it's it's up in the air, and uh, you know, did I get in at a good price? No, I think I got in at uh, through a mutual fund at uh, fifty thousand. But I, I just, I, it's just a small, it's a small piece, and I use it mainly for observation and to remind me that that even the dollar as a, a global standard um, is subject to future volatility and certainly to a depreciation in terms of its value relative to what it can buy. Huh. Really interesting. Let, let's talk growth stocks and technology. Um, they had a great couple of years until, uh, I don't know, about four or five months ago. Uh, we've seen that the complex really takes some some hits. What What are your thought about the various tech stocks that are out there and, and some of the managers who who kind of rose to fame on on the rally in technology well i i, I think uh two months ago at the peak uh, uh there was a bubble in most of these stocks um you know many of them had uh, no earnings and and really no prospect for earnings two three four five years in the future um you know they were based on hope and and yes on objective uh and subjective estimations of, of a changing world in terms of technology um, and a consumer use of, of that technology. So I don't deny that. You've pointed out in the past that, quote, the new stock queen, Kathy Wood, seems to be a two-year wonder. And since then, the art complex has had some pretty serious uh, drawdowns. What are your thoughts on managers uh, like Woods who've you know, put together a great track record when the big cap profitable companies, the Googles, Amazons, Apples, Teslas, Netflix, and Video, when when those have been screaming higher. Well, you know, I give her credit. I, I watch. She's got fifteen, twenty billion under management, and and that's that's just how you break into to this market. You don't break in by being a junior clerk like I was at. Uh, at Pacific Mutual, you break in with an innovative idea, and hers was that uh, these companies that she was buying, um, you know, were a significant part of our uh, future, our economic future, and I think that's true. But, you know, I listen to her on CNBC all the time, and um, it, it seems like she doesn't have a, uh, an excellent sense of value and when to buy and what to pay. Um, she's she simply thinks that at some point um, down the road, down the long-term road, that uh, her, her judgment in terms of owning these uh, securities will be validated, and, and perhaps they will. But in the meantime, um, you know, subject to, to huge vol- vol- uh, volatility. And I, I also think, you know, much like Peter Lynch back in, and not to knock Peter Lynch because, uh, you know, he was a uh, significant uh, part of the late 80s and early 90s um, in terms of Magellan, but um, 
you know, once more money started to come into his fund because he was doing well, uh, that money went straight into the same stocks that he was owning and buying. And, and uh, you know, it went up, up, up because the cash flow was going straight into that. And I think the same thing for the last several years with ARC um, and uh, some of the other uh, funds that she manages, huge inflows uh, would lead to more and more and more buying. And now uh, some of the outflows lead to... Uh, lower and lower prices. And so I think you just have to be careful in terms of anointing someone that has a, had a good record for two years. Now it's in the last year, it's not so good. Um, you know, let's, let's see what happens five years from now. I think it's a little early. Fair enough. And, and to clarify the assets under management, I want to say that it was about coming up on $60 billion at its peak and it's since fallen, uh, at least as of the beginning of this year, to about 23 or $25 billion. I, I'm not looking at her uh, releases, but more or less that seems to be a ballpark number when I'm looking right. at, uh, at their website. So let's talk about someone else you actually mentioned in the book uh, who's another fund manager. You, you talk about Jeff Gunlock who many anointed as the heir apparent to replace you. I don't know if that worked out that way. What are your thoughts about Gunlock's approach to managing uh, fixed income? Well, he, he sort of anointed himself. I, I mean, one of the commentators on CNBC uh, threw out the term once, and uh, and he ran with it. And I guess I, guess I did, too. But, um, you know, to be a bond king, you've got to have a kingdom. And... Uh, you know, Pimco's kingdom ultimately grew to one to two trillion dollars. Uh, Gunlock's kingdom, in terms of his mutual fund, is around fifty billion dollars and not growing. And and his performance has been like sixtieth percentile for uh, three years, five years, whatever. I, I I I think he's a smart guy. I, you know, when I listen to him on CNBC, I go, yeah. Um, and he he follows markets. You know, very assiduously, he, he's he's really into it. Um, so I, I, I respect that. But uh, you got to put up the numbers, and you got to build your kingdom uh, in order to be the bond king uh, or the new bond king. And I, you know, I, I don't think anybody can be the future bond king because uh, central banks basically are the kings and the queens uh, mm-hmm. of the market. They rule. They determine where interest rates are going. Not. Um, you know, bond managers like Pimco or, uh, you know, Double Line, et cetera, et cetera. So, huh. um, you know, I think the term is sort of passe, and, and certainly Gunlock doesn't fit, uh, you know, the, the past definition of, of what a bond king should be. Right. And and as of December 31st, 2021, Double Line had $134 billion in assets under management. Totally, uh, I don't, I'm not seeing the breakdown by fund, but... You know, it, it, it's definitely a substantial amount of money, but, you know, not a trillion dollars worth. Let, let You know, one of the things um, we should talk about is risks to financial markets. And you have pointed out that climate change is an actual risk factor. Tell us what you see um, as that risk from rising temperatures and, and how do you think about ESG investing? Well, well, I think the risk is, is, is it's sort of like the broken window syndrome. I mean, uh, so a, a, 
a bat uh, sends a baseball through a window and it breaks and you got to replace it. Um, that increases GDP, the replacement of a window, but it doesn't make the window any better than it was before. And it, it's really the same thing, I think, in terms of global warming. Um, does, um, you know, because it requires a huge amount of investment in order to, to stop it from going forward and a huge change in terms of societal uh, behavior. And, and so that investment that goes into uh, capping uh, carbon creation at a certain level you know, if it, if global warming wasn't taking place, then um, then you could use that money for something more productive. But it, it it's it's you can't really call it productive if if you simply stop a, a negative trend from happening. It 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 makes things better than they would be, uh, but it, it's sort of like the broken window. And so um, I, I think in the future, enormously countries and companies uh, will be moving in the direction of, of, um, of creating a better future environment for us and for our kids and grandkids. But, but ultimately, um, it, it won't make it any better than it is now. It'll simply not make it worse. And uh, that costs a lot of money. And don't I, I, don't make it worse. That that's the advice at this point. Right. Huh. Interesting. You know, uh, we've gone this far into the conversation, and I I just haven't gotten around to ask you about your days as a card counter and playing blackjack. Tell tell us a little bit, which also you mentioned in the book. Tell us a little bit about Ed Thorpe and and his books, and what led you to to head to Sin City. Well, I'll go through it quickly. Uh, you know, the, the year before I graduated from Duke in uh, 65, I had gone to Bahamas on the spring break, and I lost $50 on the blackjack table. Um, and I remembered that after I uh, nearly uh, cut off the top of my head in a car accident and was in a hospital for a long time, and uh somebody introduced me to this new book called Beat the Dealer, and so I had all the time in the world to sit there and and um, to discover whether or not his theory about card counting worked. I didn't have a computer, but I would play thousands of hands of blackjack back and forth, back and forth, and I discovered it worked. And so when I graduated from uh, Duke in May of 66, uh, and before I was going into the Navy, um uh, and ultimately to Vietnam four months later, I, I went to Las Vegas. I hopped on a freight train. I had $200. Uh, that's all I could afford uh, to put on the tables. And uh, took a freight train, took seven days to Vegas, got off at the Golden Nugget right in downtown, and uh, and rented a $6-a-day motel with 95 cents of free nickels and a free breakfast. And so I started playing blackjack um that that basically taught me. I, I ultimately turned it into ten thousand, and it paid for my graduate school. But it it taught me about money management. It basically it it worked off what they call the Kelly system, um, the system where you can't bet more than two percent of your um, your your stake, even if the odds uh, were tremendously in your favor, because things can go wrong. And so uh, when I ultimately went to 
Pacific Mutual and then to PIMCO, it, it became an instrumental part of risk management for me uh, because it made a lot of sense and uh, and it still does. Um, but um, yeah, Vegas for me was 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 the heart of of, of my career. Uh, ultimately, as huh. as it came to pass, it uh, it it taught me what I like to do, which is to to bet against the house and to make money. It um, it provided a system of money management, and uh, ultimately, uh, I owe it all to to Ed Thorpe, who. Uh, eventually, I met. He lives out here in yeah. uh, in Newport Beach, uh, Irvine. He was a mathematics professor, and we came together uh, to to fund a stem cell research center at uh, ten million dollars, um, you know, at UC Irvine. And, and so we we contact each other once in a while. Um, uh, he's a very smart guy, smarter than me, but um, you know, very fun to talk to and. Uh, and to talk about his times in Las Vegas, which were much, much larger than my uh, ultimate $10,000. Did, did you ever run into any of the trouble he did? Uh, Vegas is not fond of either people who win money from them and especially not fond of card counters, as they're known. Did you have the same sort of problems of getting chased from casino to casino like he did? Yeah, I get chased from a few, and I was very proud of that. It was like a badge of uh, honor uh, to be um, to be kicked out. I, I would wear different disguises. I would wear a hat. I would wear different clothes uh, to the extent that I had them. But uh, they could eventually uh, track a card counter simply by watching the size of their bets. You know, I, I would bet $2 and then 10 and then uh, $3 and then 15 back and forth, back and forth. And they could ultimately uh, watch my eyes and see me covering the table in three or four seconds in terms of counting the cards. So um, was I killing the casinos with my uh, $10,000 winnings? No, but uh, they simply didn't like the trend. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I got booted a few times. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So last question before I get to my favorite questions that we ask all our guests. In the book, you talk about having a mild case of Asperger's syndrome. Tell us about that. How, how has this affected your life? How has it manifested? A, a number of other great investors um, have either discussed being on the spectrum or wondered if they're on the spectrum. T tell us about your experience with Asperger's syndrome. Well, I was never aware of it until I, I read uh, Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short. And uh, in one of the chapters, he talks about uh, an individual called uh, Michael uh, Drury, um, who is still is prominent in, in the press, I guess, with uh, shorting and managing money. Um, but he um, 
it was either he or his son, I forget, it was probably him, um, that had Asperger's, and he listed like 10 things that, that, that alert you to the fact that he had it, and uh, and therefore I might have it. And, and one of them was not looking people in the eye or never observing uh, the color of their eyes. And uh, <laughs> to tell you the truth, I... I um, my ex-wife, I didn't know she had brown eyes until uh, seven years into the marriage. Um, and and so there were other things, too, about the characteristics. And I I took this page out to the kitchen to my ex-wife, and I said, look at this, look at this. I said, I think I have Asperger's. And she goes, you do, with certainty. And I, I said, how do you know? She said, well, we were up at uh, Bill Gates' house in Seattle uh, on an open house about four years ago, and I was watching Gates, and I was watching you. You're at the same table, um, and you were doing the same thing he was doing. He was doing the same thing you were doing, looking down at the table, not being engaging, that type of thing. And I'd heard that Gates had a mild case of uh, Asperger's, and, and so I I went to a psychologist on my own and uh, described the symptoms, and she said, he does. He's an Asperger. And so that's how I, I discovered it, and I ultimately, after my divorce, I went to a psychologist, and after the first meeting, I, I, as my closing question, I said, do you think I have Asperger's? And she said, most definitely. <laughs> and so um, that's how I became aware of it, and wh- what are the, uh, the, the, the symptoms or the characteristics or how has it affected my life. I, I think what it does is it allows me to to screen out uh, you know, minutiae and everything that's going on. Um, for instance, example, when I played uh, golf with Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson at the AT&T, uh, you know, people would say, how do you do it? You know, I'm afraid of hitting my drive into the crowd. I go, I never see the crowd. <laughs> I know they're there, but I never see them. And and so, um, you know, in, in terms of uh, PIMCO, in terms of managing money, I, I rarely see the minutia. I see the big picture uh, because of my Asperger's. That's just what Asperger's at the spectrum do. And um, so I think it's been very helpful. I, I owe a lot to Asperger's. <laughs> that, that's interesting. And, and I'm glad you brought up Tiger Woods. Because that could be my favorite story in the entire book. You you talk about almost missing a golf pro am game with him. Tell us about that story. Okay, this wasn't a setup. This wasn't a question of paying ten thousand dollars to play with Tiger Woods. This was the AT and T pro am. This was big time. You got to qualify, right? You got to hit your way into the actual game. Right, the first three days you qualify, and if you have a certain score, you make it into Sunday. And so uh, when Bill Thompson and I, the CEO, went up there uh, in 2002, um, you know, the rumor was that you needed to be 19 under as a team in order to qualify for Sunday. And so I I finished my round on Saturday, and Thompson came up, and he, he had been 14 under, and he, he said, what are you? I said, 16 under. He said, well, let's go home because 1900 makes the cut. I said, I don't know. Maybe he should stay. And he goes, no, let's go. So we went to the airport, and we're waiting in line. And um, this guy from my local country club had a cell phone, and, and cell phones weren't that 
popular back then. I certainly didn't have one. And he said, Bill, how'd you do? I said, uh, 16 under, probably miss a cut by two. <clears throat> and he goes, no. I said, he said, I just checked. He said, 16 under is in a card off. I go, oh, okay. And so I told Thompson he better go home and I'd better go back to the hotel. So I went back to the hotel and at nine o'clock my caddy calls up and, and he says, Mr. Gross, we made the cut. We, uh, the card off, we made the cut. And guess who we're playing with at 8.30 in the morning? I go, who? He goes, and I almost fainted and of course never slept. But um, if that gentleman hadn't uh, seen me at the airport check-in line and told me I had a chance, I would have been sleeping Sunday morning in Newport Beach while Tiger was waiting for me uh, <laughs> to to meet him on the first tee. It was it was incredible luck, incredible luck. <laughs> huh. That's just uh, uh, an amazing story, and and sometimes right place, right time is is all that matters. Uh, all right, so I've kept you for two hours, far longer than I usual. Let me jump to my favorite questions. We ask all our guests starting with something that you actually mentioned earlier. Tell us what you're streaming these days, what kept you busy during uh, the lockdown on either Amazon Prime or Netflix or, or whatever you were entertained with. Well, I get up at 5.30. Uh, I've got a Bloomberg here, and I've got a Bloomberg at my other homes. And um, so I get up, and, uh, you know, the markets here open up at 6.30, and so I start uh, managing my portfolio, doing trading, mostly uh, in stocks these days and, and uh, stock options. But it occupies my time till market close at 12.30. Sometimes I take a nap because I had gotten up so early and my lovely wife uh, keeps me up till 11 o'clock to watch uh, uh, serial programs and, and so on. So I don't get that much sleep uh, but in any case, I, I manage money. And then here I am out uh, for eight months of the year out at the Vintage and Indian Wells. It's 85 degrees. It's almost always 75 to 85 degrees. It's like Hawaii. And I'm looking out at the golf course, and uh, I have a little lunch. I hop in my cart with uh, Amy, and uh, we go play golf in the afternoon. That's like, what? Uh, you know, this, this is... Uh, this is paradise. You know, our family comes out here to visit, and um, it's just the all-around best time I could ever imagine doing uh, something I love in terms of investing and doing something I love in terms of golf, uh, which I do every day. And so um, that, that's basically my day. Tell us about some of your early mentors who, who helped to shape your career. Well, to be honest and fair, I, I only had one. Um, and that was Walter Gerken, who was the CEO and chairman of the Board of Pacific Mutual. And it was uh, Gerken that basically, who, who was a risk taker for an insurance executive, um, it was Gerken who basically gave the uh, go-ahead and the all-clear to to start uh, the $5 million um, uh, bond fund. And, and, and the man would take me to New York for conferences and so on and so on. And clearly he was supporting me for some future role. I don't think he 
necessarily uh, knew that uh, Pimco was going to be a raging success, but he was, he was willing to take the chance and to, to give me his uh, moral and, uh, I guess, financial support, because there was a time uh, in the first few years of Pimco where we weren't making any money and not getting very many clients, and, uh, you know, they, they could have uh, canceled us uh, straight away, but... Uh, he didn't. He supported me, uh, you know, throughout the five, ten, fifteen, twenty years that uh, that he was active uh, within the industry, and uh, so I say it was Mr. Gherkin. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. No longer with us. Let's talk about books. What are some of your all-time favorites and, and what are you reading right now? Well, um, you know, all-time all favorites is one thing, um, I guess. Um, I, one of my favorite books was uh, by a brilliant author who won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, Annie Dillard, uh, who wrote a, an incredible book called Pilgrim at uh, Tinker Creek, which was about observations of life, nature, and uh and personal reflections on on both. And I, I would encourage any of your listeners to, to pick up Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at uh, Tinker Creek. She also wrote a book called American Childhood, which was much like mine. Um, she's the same age, grew up in Pittsburgh, and uh, her childhood memories are, are quite similar to how I was um, to how I was growing up. I. I also um, I'm, I'm recently uh, I recently bought recently reading uh, a book called The Age of uh, AI, which is uh, a book co-authored by Henry Kissinger and uh, Eric Schmidt from Google and um, a third party who probably wrote most of it. But uh, it's very interesting about artificial intelligence and the future that it has for for all of us going forward and. Um, and then there's another book. There's an author called Julian Barnes who's, who's written 15 books. Uh, he's a wonderful writer, very introspective, and uh, it's called uh, Nothing to Be Afraid of, and it's it's about death and dying and his thoughts going forward, uh, which is sort of apropos at uh, 77. I I sort of say I'm uh, in the in the death zone at uh, 77 because that's when people uh, find out they have prostate cancer or breast cancer or whatever. Um, it, it's it's not a good time going forward. And so, it, uh, you know, it, it's very introspective. And the man has written other books that I think other people would enjoy, Julian Barnes and Nothing to Be Afraid of. So huh. uh, those are some of them. Re- really interesting stuff. Our final two questions... What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in either investing or fixed income? Ooh, um, 
Well, I would say this. I mean, uh, the market's much different now than it was then, and I, I had an opening in terms of the line uh, that uh, you know, even a 10-year-old could have run through, I, I guess. Um, now it's a different story. But I, but I think finance um, will always be with us, uh, whether it's stocks, bonds, real estate. Um, uh, you know, money is... is something that's always been with us, and the making of money with money has always been with us. I don't see that. Uh, I see it changing, but I don't, I don't see it uh, declining in any form or fashion. And so I, I would advise uh, those that are thinking about the industry to do, do something like, uh, yeah, like Kathy Wood did. I mean, she she innovated in terms of her ideas and in terms of her portfolio construction. She, she did take a risk in terms of her ideas. I, I mentioned before that she uh, didn't pay too much attention to price, but, but obviously she created this huge wedge and opening for herself uh, with a product that, um, that no one else was thinking of. And so what are those products? I don't know. Um, uh, I'm past the stage of innovation, but um, yeah, I, I, I would say, uh, in addition to spending your one or two years at Goldman or whatever, uh, in terms of a background, that uh, you know you you kind of go out on your own and innovate uh, with some type of product that will that will get you going and and make you a a star and make you some money and. And lead you to hopefully to an obsessive enjoyment of of what you're doing. You you can't succeed. I would tell them you can't succeed unless you love what you're doing. Huh. Really, really interesting. And our final question: What do you know about the world of finance today that you wish you knew 50 years or so ago when you were first getting started out? Oh. Um... You know what I think it is, Barry? I, I think, um, you know, there was an old saw from Will Rogers, the old uh, journalist in the 30s, and he, he said a lot of funny things, sort of like Yogi Berra. Um, he was known for, um, you know, funny quips and funny comments. And uh, I, I remember him saying about the stock market, he, he said, if you, if you have a stock that goes up, buy it. And he goes, if it doesn't go up, don't buy it. Um, and I, I thought that was really funny, and I didn't. Uh, and I, I think he thought it was funny too. I don't think he knew what he was talking about, but it, it really refers to momentum. Uh, if, if you find a stock that goes up, buy it, uh, uh, and if it goes down, don't buy it, uh, because momentum is a very powerful force that I learned, you know, sort of in the last ten or fifteen years of, of managing money. Um, it's an alpha generator. It's statistically proven to be an alpha generator. It can turn against you, like in the last few months when momentum, sure. upward momentum, turns negative and it uh, it turns into downward momentum. But momentum is something uh, that, that's really predicated upon human nature. They, they do what has been uh, successful before, and it continues until it doesn't. And so I, I think that's what I... <laughs> That's what I was always skeptical skeptical of. I was always skeptical of people that uh, followed momentum uh, because I thought that was just joining the crowd. Well, joining the crowd works uh, for a while uh, until it doesn't, and and 
how do you measure it? Well, you can measure it with 200 moving day averages, with Bollinger Bands, with lots of different things, but um, it, it's, it's statistically an alpha generator in addition to several other things that um, I discovered before that. So I'd, I'd say I, I should have been more appreciative of momentum, not that that Demco with its secular forecast wasn't really doing the same thing and, and following momentum downward in terms of interest rates and upward in terms of bond prices. But I, 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 I follow momentum today. It's, it's important. Huh. Re- really, really great stuff. Bill, thank you for being so, so generous with your time. We've been speaking with the Bond King, Bill Gross, co-founder of PIMCO, the man who managed more bond money than literally anybody else uh, in the private sector has ever done. If you enjoy this conversation, check out any of our previous 400-plus discussions we've held over the past eight years. Uh, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from, you'll find Masters in Business. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps me put these conversations together each week. Catherine Silva is my audio engineer. Sean Russo is my head of research. Paris Wald is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.